This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 24, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The influential members of the government's intelligence apparatus and their supporters are what Oregon Senator Ron Wyden calls the business-as-usual brigade. And confusing the debate over surveillance is part of their primary mission. Wyden spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on NSA surveillance in October. In my view, a good way to measure the credibility of scholars and thinkers in Washington is by watching to see whether they can stay true to their views, regardless of the impact their views have on partisan politics. That's why Cato scholars like Jim and Julian Sanchez are the go-to leaders, the people we look to for leadership on these issues of security and liberty And big thanks to you, Jim, and and to Julian for having me today. Let me begin by saying that this conference could not be more timely. The Senate Intelligence Committee is going to soon be marking up a new surveillance bill. And the House and the Senate Judiciary Committees are working on legislation as well. Two weeks ago, a bipartisan group of senators, myself included, kicked off this debate by introducing the first comprehensive bipartisan surveillance reform bill following the June disclosures. Our legislation would end the bulk collection of Americans' records, close the backdoor search loophole, that allows Americans' communications to be reviewed without a warrant, make the FISA court operate more like a court that's worthy of our wonderful country, and expand the ability of our citizens to have their grievances heard in the federal courts. Now, these issues are all going to be discussed today, so I thought I'd start with my bottom line. The goal of our bipartisan bill is to set the bar for measuring what really constitutes real intelligence reform. And the reason our bipartisan group wanted to put this marker down early is because we know in the months ahead, we are going to be up against what I call the business as usual brigade. They're the influential members of the government's intelligence leadership. They're allies in think tanks and academia, some retired government officials, and sympathetic legislators. And their objective, and I want to state this clearly right at the outset, is to fog up the surveillance debate and convince the Congress and the public that the real problem here is not overly intrusive, constitutionally flawed domestic surveillance, but the real problem is all that sensationalistic media reporting. And their end game is ensuring that any surveillance reforms are only skin deep. Some of the business-as-usual arguments 
have a little bit of a Alice in Wonderland flavor. We have heard that surveillance of Americans' phone records, aka metadata, is not actually surveillance at all. It's simply the collection of you know, bits of information. We've been told that falsehoods aren't really falsehoods. They're just imprecise statements. We've been told that rules that have repeatedly been broken are actually a valuable check on government overreach. <clears throat> and we've been told that codifying secret surveillance laws and making them public surveillance laws is really the same thing as actually reforming overreaching surveillance programs. Suffice it to say, and I'll explain why, it is no such thing. These arguments, of course, leave the public with a distorted picture of what the government is actually up to. Those tiny bits of information, when put together, paint an illuminating picture of what the private lives of law-abiding Americans are really like. Erroneous statements that are made on the public record but are never corrected mislead the public and other members of Congress as well. Privacy protections, so-called, that don't actually protect privacy are not worth the paper they're printed on. Just because intelligence officials say that a particular program helps catch terrorists does not make it true. This is some of the peculiar logic, like the false choice between security and liberty, that I think we are certain to hear from the business-as-usual brigade, and they are going to double down with that argument to protect the status quo. Now, I want to spend a few more minutes talking about the specifics that are going to be part of what we'll hear from this corner. Now, I'm encouraged that the president has said that he supports the creation of an independent advocate to argue cases before the FISA court. I also believe that the intelligence leadership is going to argue for limiting the advocate's mandate, and the advocate's resources. They will most likely propose that the advocate should only be allowed to argue cases at the request of FISA court judges, and that he or she should not be allowed to appeal cases or assist private companies and individuals that wish to challenge overly broad surveillance orders. In reality, you create this kind of uh, approach where you don't have a mandate and you don't have the resources that are needed for you know, real oversight, what you would have is their cover for business as usual. The executive branch has also begun declassifying information about domestic surveillance authorities and activities in response to the disclosures by the media and the lawsuits filed on the free, under the Freedom of Information Act. I think the expectation is that that will continue. But when it comes to greater transparency and openness, the executive branch has shown little interest in lasting reforms 
that would actually make the intelligence community more open and transparent. And executive branch, branch officials are probably going to resist the attempts to mandate greater transparency. My view is, is this is hugely unfortunate because requiring the government to be more open about the official interpretation. In other words, this is not the secret operations. The official interpretation of the law is critical. It's the only way that our people can decide whether or not laws need to be changed. I also expect the defenders of business as usual to try to codify the surveillance authorities that reformers want to repeal. Friends, from a privacy and liberty perspective, this is truly a dangerous proposition. It would spark a new era of digital surveillance in our country and serve as a big rubber stamp of approval for invading the rights of law-abiding Americans. The argument is going to be, from these defenders of business as usual, is that the government is going to be collecting lots and lots of data on innocent Americans, but nobody ought to really worry because there are rules about who gets to look at it and when. There are multiple and serious problems with this trust us argument. Number one, when the Founding Fathers wrote the Fourth Amendment, they didn't say it's okay to issue general warrants as long as you have the rules for when you're allowed to look at the papers you seize. The Founding Fathers said that the government should only be allowed to obtain somebody's private papers and effects if they have evidence that that person is involved in a crime or, in effect, nefarious activities. And the reason they said that is that collecting private information about people has an impact on their privacy, whether you actually look at it or not, the views of Director Clapper notwithstanding. Number two, none of these rules involves individual review by a judge. If the NSA decides that it wants to look through the bulk phone records database or conduct a backdoor search for a particular American's emails, it can do so without getting the approval of anyone outside the NSA. So I would argue there aren't enough independent checks on the government's authority there. For number three, I'll go back to looking at the actual track record of the intelligence agencies. The rules have been broken, and the rules have been broken a lot. In 2009, the FISA court itself ruled, and I quote, the minimization procedures proposed by the government in each successive application and approved as binding by the orders, the orders of the FISA court, have been so frequently and systematically violated that it can be fairly said that this critical element of the overall regime, the business records regime, has never functioned 
effectively. You know what that means in kind of English, you know, not legal jargon. I'm a lawyer kind of name only. That's legalese for a serious smackdown of the government by the court. That's what we're talking about here. Even if these rules were somehow written in a way that totally erased the privacy impact of bulk records collection, I don't happen to think it's possible. The fact is that the routine violations of these rules over the years clearly demonstrates that trying to rely on this approach is seriously flawed. So the defenders of business as usual are going to argue that the best way to protect Americans' rights is to codify these rules into law. Maybe we'll give them a little tweak around the edges here and there, but we really ought to embed them in the law. This would be a huge mistake. Codifying the rules for bulk phone records collection into law will just make this constitutionally flawed program more permanent. And putting a congressional imprimatur on invading the rights of law-abiding Americans is a mistake that Congress would regret. In particular, it makes it easier for the executive branch to use the Patriot Act to collect other types of records in bulk in the future. This could include medical records, financial records, library records, firearm records. The list goes on. The executive branch has refused to rule out using the Patriot Act to collect these records. So any of them, any of them could be up for grabs. If the rules for bulk phone records collection are written into law that will make it easier to argue the use of the Patriot Act for bulk collection was deliberately authorized by the elected representatives of the people, that's not in the public interest. Codifying the bulk collection program into law will usher in a new era of digital surveillance, and it will normalize overbroad authorities that were once considered unthinkable in our country. Now, defenders of this business-as-usual approach, as I call it, were clearly hoping that public outrage about these programs would fade once there were details uh, out there so that people had a better understanding of what has occurred. And you'll recall that was a comment made early on. That, you know, once people just know more about it, all this um, sensationalistic you know, media reporting will be exposed you know, for what it is, and people will feel comfortable with what has been reported. But the exact opposite has happened. The more information people learn about these programs, the less they actually like them. The polls show that public opinion has moved significantly in a pro-reform direction since those initial disclosures were made back in June. The fact is that most Americans think their government can protect our security and our liberty. These two are not mutually exclusive. And a lot of Americans feel that there hadn't been enough effort by elected officials to delivering on both of those counts. As a result of this groundswell, 
of public concern, members of Congress have been uh, outlining ideas for reforms. We're going to talk a lot about various proposals you know, today. Let me just suggest that this discussion has essentially evolved in three phases. The first phase was in the immediate aftermath of the June uh, disclosure, disclosures. Then you had a number of members of Congress, in effect, reintroducing ideas they had proposed in the past and were considered newly relevant, given the disclosures of June. I was among those, and Senator Udall and I brought forth an idea that we felt strongly about, and that is to end bulk collection of the phone records on law-abiding Americans. The second phase unfolded over the following months as members who hadn't been as extensively involved started to develop additional ideas. This included reforming the FISA court, allowing private companies to disclose more information about their cooperation with the government. The third phase begins now, and you have members of Congress trying to take the best ideas about the important issues and meld them in to a comprehensive reform agenda. That's what I and Senator Udall and Senator Paul and Senator Blumenthal sought to do with the bill we introduced uh, several uh, weeks ago. I also want to commend uh, Chairman uh, Pat Leahy, who has done yeoman work in this area for many years, and he's working on a promising package in the Senate uh, Judiciary uh, committee uh, at this time. So I offer up that reformers are in a better position uh, today, but we know that the challenge of getting reform over that bar that I described uh, earlier is still going to involve a lot of work and convincing some who have not been with us in the past. We know that uh, defenders of business as usual are going to use what I call the language of reform. I wish I had a nickel for each time I heard a senior intelligence official say that their agency is open to considering a particular change in the law. The reality is you're going to hear a lot of that in the days ahead, and they're going to talk about the need to make changes, restore public confidence, but make no mistake about it, behind the scenes, they're going to be working very hard to preserve the existing authorities. And those intelligence leaders are going to pull out all the stops. We saw some of that in the House you know, vote that uh, was held uh, earlier, they will pull out all the stops to try to hold off the kind of real reforms I've described. So I've been in tough battles before when it seemed like the odds were insurmountable. When I think of the days ahead, sometimes I think about the battle against the anti-internet freedom legislation that you might remember as the PIPA and the SOPA bills. 
I put a hold on the predecessor of those bills in late 2010 because I saw that there would be an opportunity for a groundswell of grassroots you know, op opposition. And we won. We won several years uh, later when there was a Senate vote scheduled to, in effect, try to defeat my hold. And millions of Americans weighed in and said, we're certainly against piracy and the like on the net, but we're just not going to sit idly by and watch all this damage to the cause of internet of freedom. Like in that you know, instance, it's going to take that kind of groundswell of support from lots of Americans across the political spectrum, letting their members of Congress know what they want, communicating that business as usual is no longer OK, and they won't buy the idea that liberty and security are mutually exclusive. Key parts of the debate are starting now. They're going to unfold in the next few weeks. And that's why what Jim and Julian have put together is so important. Different bills are going to be brought forward. The leadership in both the House and the Senate is going to assess which bills they want to use as the base bill for discussion on the floor of the House and the Senate. For the millions of law-abiding Americans who care about protecting security and liberty, the values that the fathers, the founding fathers, fought for, the time for action is now. For those millions of Americans, reformers are going to be there when those citizens ask us, how can we help? We'll be there. Time for reform is now. Ron Wyden is a Democratic U.S. Senator from Oregon. He spoke at the Cato Institute's conference on NSA surveillance in October. You can watch the full conference at Cato.org.